0: I don't think anybody truly relishes the idea about speaking about family life, because you keep thinking about your own situation, you realize that it's, you know, life is complex and the family journey is always complex, and that's true in every single family. But I do relish... Coming to the scriptures because they fill us with hope and with opportunity to understand um, all the different dimensions of family relationships. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Now, Terry left us in a wonderful place at the end of last week because he was dealing with Ephesians 5, talking about um, godly living, some dimensions of godly living, some quite hard hitting stuff that Terry said. But then we came to the final verses just before the ones we're going to look at now, beautiful verses. Uh, which I want to start with because they introduce the theme as Paul comes towards the end of the book and he starts talking about households, what happens at home, because Paul believed passionately that what happens at home is the foundation for church life. And so we're going to come into that in just a moment. But uh, let's uh, just look quickly at the very final verses of the last passage, which uh, 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 Terry ended with last week. He said in verse 18 of chapter 5, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, that's a pretty good place to start, isn't it? And then he follows with another verse, which links this passage to the next one. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we could put those verses up, that would be really helpful. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's basically describing there a situation, more or less what's happened this morning. We come together. We try to be filled with the Spirit. We're singing psalms and hymns to each other. We're praising God. We're listening to God talking through each other. We're giving thanks. The communion is a thanks. So we've just done all that. In a sense, you may not realize it, but that's the sort of thing we've been doing, seeking to be filled with the Spirit together. It's a wonderful experience every time. And then he says, very interestingly, this is the link verse, and I really want to try and explain this before we move on to the actual relationships he's talking about. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Basically, Paul, his approach to human relationships is that we take the view— That any brother or sister, any fellow Christian can have something that they can bring to you that's going to challenge or encourage you. And it doesn't matter who they are. Submit to one another. In other words, the other person, as they come, following the previous verses, in the power of the Spirit, as they come with human wisdom, as they come with friendship, with love, with some spiritual gift to you, some encouragement, some comment, uh, we need to be open to that possibility. Are you open to that possibility? That's the foundational reality of being a Christian. 1978, I was in a gap year in South Africa, and a very rich man in Johannesburg, uh, uh, he, he was living away somewhere, he said, you can use my house. I was traveling alone at the time, visiting, meeting up with some friends, and he said, you can stay in my, my house, a rich man's house in Johannesburg. And the only other person in the house He was away. No no member of the family there was his servant. Now, these were the days of apartheid, black and white separated. This man was called James, and he lived in Soweto, which is a big township nearby, very poor, and I was in a very rich house, and I'm the, the guy who's come from England from a reasonably privileged background, and here's this man called James. He's the only other person in the house, and he's the servant in the house, and he said, I've been asked to look after you while you're here, so we got talking, and he started talking to me about faith, turned out to be a Christian, and he started talking to me about the Bible, and it turns out he knew the Bible quite well. He didn't have much education, and I had a very good education, I came from quite a affluent family he came from a very very poor neighborhood indeed and as he started talking to me started asking me questions about the bible and i couldn't answer them i said i don't really know about that one james i've not really read that passage very carefully well have a look at this one he said and he got his bible out this black man from this township never met him before he said, you, you know, you're, a, you're an energetic Christian, he said. But uh, he said to me, I think you've got quite a lot of work to do on your Bible knowledge. <laughs> now, I was 18, he was about 40. I had 70 times as much education as him. And in that moment, there was a submit to one another out of reverence for Christ moment for me because I thought... Either I'm going to get prickly here, or I'm going to say, you're right, actually. And he said, you're not going to get that far in your Christian life unless you really give more attention to the Bible. He was quite forthright with me. This man with no social background and privilege, in fact, underprivileged in his country, had more of Christ than I did. And this is where this verse has a real cutting edge, because I never forgot that comment. I can remember it as vividly today as, as, as all those 40-odd years ago. And I set myself to say, that guy's right. I'm going to really focus on learning the Bible. Now, I'd, I'd love to meet him again now, have the same conversation, and say, I've learned a few things in these last 40 years, but I don't know whether he's still around, So Paul is, in general, encouraging this attitude of fellowship, togetherness, worship, Holy Spirit, where anyone can speak to anyone, where we have a profound respect for one another. The adults respect the children, and all the different age groups and all the different social groups respect each other. But then he goes on, which we're going to look at in a minute, to talk about precise family relationships, And before we get to what Paul's going to say about that, we'd better just have a look at the background situation that he's talking about. So what was going on in the Roman world? What was going on in cities? Here's ancient Rome reconstructed. We're thinking about ancient Ephesus, a big, big city like Rome. What was it like in those cities? How did relationships work? Well, the first thing we need to know is that 50% of people living in those cities would be living on subsistence or below. Very, very poor. The rich were few. And all the way through those cities, and this is really important for our text, there was slavery. You probably noticed in the New Testament that slavery appears from time to time. What was this slavery? We're going to talk about slaves and their masters in just a minute. We need to have a bit of an introduction to understand what was going on here. This wasn't based on color. This wasn't a racial slavery. Anybody could be a slave in the Roman world. It could be a Brit, it could be someone from France, it could be someone from Italy, it could be someone from Turkey or someone from Greece, or it could be a Jew, it could be anybody. How did you get into slavery? You got into slavery through warfare. If you fought against the Romans, you're really in trouble because they would enslave whole sectors of the population. If you became really, really poor, you would sell yourself into slavery. And so all the way through the Roman world... Very important for our text. There were huge numbers of slaves. Now, they weren't chained, by and large. They worked in the farms. They worked in mines. They worked on galleys as galley slaves. You've probably seen that on the films. They worked in government administration sometimes. And for our purposes, the most important thing is many slaves worked in the home. Domestic servants, but without the freedom to change their jobs, they were there for life. But how long was life? Average age of a slave? Not more than 30 years. They had a very hard life. They could be brutally exploited, sexually, financially, work. They could be abused. They were the property of their masters, the men who ran the households. So in Ephesus... The city we're talking about, it has been estimated that 25% of the population were slaves. Okay, right. Let's just do... We've got four blocks here. So that's like saying that in this, if we were just an average church congregation in Ephesus, probably all of this block... Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. Block on my left. Are slaves. That's on average. In any church congregation... And because church congregations tended to be poorer rather than richer, it might get up to 50%. So we'll take this block as well. You thought you'd got, got off scot free, didn't you? But it's certainly 25%. This is a big deal. Huge difference of rights, legal rights, power, influence, opportunity. Slavery was everywhere. And what kind of households is Paul actually talking about? What kind of households did the Romans believe in? The Romans had a very clear concept of the home. By the way, Paul had a rather different view, and you'll see the difference in a minute. In Roman society, the empire was built on the home. By the way, same idea that Hitler had. Get the home right and we'll build up the Reich. But the Romans, any imperial power usually has this idea. The strong home is important. And so who who's in charge of the strong home? In the Roman idea, legally and socially, the father of the house, the husband or the leading male figure in the house, had legal power over the whole household. The slaves actually belonged to him personally. And his decisions were final. He had the legal authority. He could rule over the household. uh, So the situation between husband and wife would depend on the dynamic of the relationship, but that could be abused. The situation between parents and children depended on the dynamic of the family, but that could easily be abused. And Paul addresses this issue directly in the passage, particularly addressing a comment to fathers, because the power of that individual socially and legally was enormous far more than we might imagine so the standard roman home the ideal roman home had a very strong father figure in the middle but that could create all sorts of oppression and difficulties of course there were some households that weren't like that some were led by females We see some of those in the New Testament. Lydia, for example, in Acts 16. Probably Phoebe in Romans 16. Definitely Chloe in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 are three ladies who probably led their households. But it wasn't that common because a woman would have to have enough financial independence to be able to lead her household. And single people tended not to live alone as in the modern world because there wasn't enough housing capacity. There wasn't enough wealth And there was no welfare state. And there were no building societies and mortgages, particularly. So single people would generally be tagged on to these big households with the father figure at the center and the family around. And if they're rich, they'd have slaves. And then they'd have aunts and uncles and elderly relatives, young singles and other odd relatives who just didn't quite fit in anywhere. They'd all come under this household banner. But it wasn 't an ideal world, and one of the questions for Christian discipleship in the New Testament is what are we going to do about family life? What does God say and paul 's just about to address this issue, a really important issue let's have a look at three different kind of snapshots of the Roman family here's a rich family for you: mothers in the middle, children playing happily don't you love these pictures? You know if only life was really like this uh, the the father figures there in the orange uh, tunic uh, to the left, uh, talking to some other guy, maybe a visitor. Uh, there's a slave in the kitchen in the middle. That's a male slave cooking the meal. They're not chained up or anything. These are servants. But the thing is that if they escape, by the way, there really is no escape, because there's nowhere to go. People find them and bring them back, you know. Um, often they're branded in such a way that you can see their slaves. Female servant slaves over to the to the right, some other guests. This is a wealthy family. That's the kind of Roman ideal. But not everybody lived like that. Most people certainly didn't. They lived more like this. This is the slums of Rome. Rome was filled with these multi-story slums. You can see it in the archaeology and all over the Roman world. There were these. Slums where people lived in very close confinement, lots of people crammed into a small space. And so this social structure became more under pressure. No slaves or servants here, you did everything yourself, and it was extremely unhygienic and extremely hard life. And then, if you're in the country, here's a kind of peasant family or a country farming family, just a tiny little small holding, father, mother, and children. These are the family environments that we might imagine. Now, Paul, his perspective was that he wasn't supporting the Roman Empire with the households. He was saying the households are the foundation for the church. Because he called the church the household of God. So lots and lots of households make a big household, a big community of faith. So what happens in those households really affected the church. That was his vision. And he wanted to transform this rather harsh Roman environment. But he did not want to break up the family or be subversive because that would cause a lot of difficulties and was quite contrary to what he wanted to do. <clears throat> and what was Paul's view of slavery? We're going to just talk about slavery in a minute. I'm sure that Paul opposed slavery, but the Christians could not politically oppose slavery in the Roman Empire. There was no democracy, no vote. They had no numbers. They had no influence. It would have been absolutely suicidal to have made slavery their number one campaign when they were founding the church. But Paul was being subversive to slavery because he taught that every person is equal. And so in the church communities... You found the slaves getting dignity, some of them getting freedom, some of the richer Christians giving their slaves freedom. And you see that process going on in the New Testament from time to time. But turning to our text, he addresses, first of all, the relationship between husbands and wives. Now, as we listen to this, of course, any congregation listening to this text will find that about about half the people listening are probably not in this relational situation so apologies for that this is a generic teaching and Paul knew that there were other different types of households but he wanted to address specifically the question of marriage so we're going to read verse 22 to verse 33 Or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For all members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, this teaching falls dramatically in between two cultural realities. We've got the Roman culture over here, which is being undermined by this, and we've got modern culture over here, which looks skeptically at this. I'm sure you'll agree with that. So let's now really think, what is Paul trying to say? The focus of his, uh, the interesting thing is the focus of his attention primarily is the husband. And he lays down two theological foundations, two Biblical realities as the basis for understanding the relationship between husband and wife. Now, in the Roman way of thinking, it was an authority structure. He had the authority. He ruled the household. But we see that Paul has a very different view. He's talking about what eventually turns out to be a servant leadership role. Quite different to what the Romans believed in. They didn't believe in that at all. They believed a man could basically do whatever he chose to do and, and that was justified and so Paul points out in this passage verse 31 we're familiar with the passage from marriage services um, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh the foundational there's a creation pattern for marriage that Paul alludes to so he believes that the marriage relationship some or other is rooted in creation and Christianity is recovering the balance of creation between the man and the woman. Something that was distorted by the Romans in a hierarchical structure. And he's bringing what he considers to be a biblical balance. And secondly, he points out a very powerful analogy... That he sees the relationship between the husband and the wife as like between Christ and the church. And he says to the man, Think about Christ and how he loved the church in order to understand what your role might be in your marriage. And then he's asking the wife to respond to that reality as she sees it in her husband. So there are two fundamental truths the creational pattern, and the relationship between Christ and the church, which form the Christian structure and understanding of the marriage relationship. These are the two foundations. Very different from the Roman way of thinking that I've described to you, because here we don't actually have like a hierarchical relationship. We have a relationship where there are different responsibilities of Equality of status, but the husband is being called in a certain way to love and to serve. And when you go back to the Genesis 2 account, you find the reason why Paul believes this to be the husband's responsibility. I wonder whether you remember the account in Genesis 2. Whether you believe this to be a literal reality as I do, or a symbolic reality, you still get the same truth at either end. In Genesis 2, we discover this very interesting scene. Adam created first and placed in a garden. Do you remember that in Genesis 2? He's put in the, the Lord God took him and put him in the garden to look after it, to till it, and then he gave him some commands. You know, you can eat what you like. The tree over there, you're not allowed to eat. You but mustn't go there, but you can have anything else you like, but you need to work the garden. Okay, do you remember that? This is what, what Paul has in mind in Genesis 2. Come on, Adam, get working. You know, creation isn't just a, isn't something just to have a have a look at. It's, it may be very beautiful. It needs a heck of a lot of cultivation. And you're the number one cultivator. So let's get started. And then the very next verse, it says that God, no suitable helper was found for Adam. So God created the helper, the partner. Now, we always consider that as about the marriage relationship, but the original context is it's a partner in the work of God. So the first implication of that is that the creation of Eve is so that they can get tilling and plowing together. Then get on with cultivating together. He's not going to do it on his own. They're going to do it together. And she says to him, well, what's the command God has given? Well, he said we should do this and that, but not go over there and not that tree. And... So that's why when sin came and God comes back into the garden, who does he go looking for first? You know the answer to that question? Adam. Where are you? Why is he looking for Adam first? Because he spoke to Adam first. And he gave Adam the primary command. Hey, Adam, what are you doing? Stop passing the buck. I called you in partnership together. And Paul has this in mind. When he quotes a verse from uh, Genesis 2, You'll always, ha- from the Old Testament, he'll always have in mind the whole context. So that partnership, both in marriage and in Life in general in the kingdom between men and women, which is one of the most dynamic and powerful things you can ever imagine, and obviously vulnerable in some ways, is based on these foundational realities. And Paul then makes an application to the husband and says, in a sense, just like Adam had that responsibility, so you, Christian husband, you have a responsibility for what he describes being the head. But we already know this isn't a role of authority and power because we've just seen the description of the sacrificial love that's required. We know that from everything that Paul says in the context. So what does it mean? What does it mean? I've thought about this a lot. And I, the way I like to describe it is, in a Christian marriage, I think God particularly asks the husband to, first of all, model discipleship and serving God in his own life. And secondly, actively seek God to work out what is God calling us as a couple or a family to do to live? How should we live our lives? Where should we live? What should we do? What should we prioritize? To actively think about that as a prior responsibility. I remember many years ago talking to a lady well-known Christian leader of a, previous, a decade, previous last generation, Mary Pitches, whose husband founded the New Wine Festival and she was a well-known writer and counsellor. I met her in a church context and I just sidled up to her in the church meeting and I said, Mary, you're a well-known leader. I've read some of your books. How would you describe this concept of headship? How, what does it mean to you as a mature Christian and a counsellor? And she said... I think that God calls the husband to draw a circle of protection around the family, to guard it, to give place for the family to flourish, not to be passive, but to be actively engaged in the well being of wife and children. I took that very much to heart found it a very profound way of looking at it and for many years as a result of that every year at the beginning of the year I spend some time in prayer and my focus is the family whatever situation and the situations have changed dramatically over the year and I say Lord what is it you want for us and what is my duty as the servant of that family to help bring about those best conditions for my wife my children when they were younger this can mean many things. I was talking to a man this week about his marriage uh, in another part of the country, no children involved, and his wife has an advancing career and he doesn't. And so he was thinking one of his priorities as a husband is to help her career to develop, to find the right environment where that's going to develop for the next five or so years, where that's the priority of the family. And so... This seems all very idealistic, doesn't it? It's a, it's a tough thing to live up to. But Paul is putting a really high standard because he wants the most fruitful lives for Christian people. And he's inviting the wives to be active collaborators with a Christ-like husband who is a servant leader. But there's no implication of this of upholding or protecting his sinful behavior. There's a higher loyalty for a wife, and that is to Christ Himself. I remember one one occasion, some people that uh, we knew from uh, from previous situations who don't live anywhere near here. Uh, the wife phoned me up and said, uh, "I'm sending my husband round to you." Oh, that sounded a bit worrying. Uh, he's got a serious problem with pornography, and you're going to sort it out. She. Found him uh, with pornography, and she she'd adopted a zero tolerance approach. Now that's quite in quite in line with the biblical thing here, because that's sin. So she's not being asked to tolerate that. If she didn't tolerate, I upheld her view completely, and I helped this guy over a couple of years, and we managed to work through the problem. But it's finding it's finding God's way, finding the best way to obey God is that thing that He really wants wants to help us with, and He's asking men to take a particular responsibility for that in a servant way, to actively seek God. What is the best thing? What's the best use of money? What's the best use of time? What are the things that family members need? How can he support his wife in the best way in her needs? These are constant and vital questions that Paul has in mind. So you can see what Paul is doing here is he's he's saying we don't want to live like the Romans with these very hierarchical and quite oppressive structures. But we do want to have a way of living as Christian families that's rooted on some biblical realities. So he brings two biblical realities, a creational pattern and um a connection between the analogy of Christ and the church. And that is a challenge. And then he goes on. Chapter 6, to deal with another important family issue. Children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Notice that he focuses on fathers. And the reason for that is actually because the father had all this power in the Roman household. And he said, don't use that Roman version of things. Don't exasperate your children by trying to force them and trying to control them or trying to dominate them. Rather, he's encouraging parents to be an example and provide steady guidance with the aim to create good habits. I was talking to a father this week who had... Um, a number of young children, pre-secondary children. And he's entered, uh, and he was talking to me about an area just related to all this, uh, which I'm I'm, going to call by a name that hasn't yet been invented. I think there's a new form of discipleship coming our way in our culture. It's called digital discipleship. And the question is that he was facing is that our kids have got... Gaming, social media, internet, Facebook, all the other things. How much access should they have? How much time should they have? How much freedom should they have? At what age should they see this or that or the other? Any parents come across these issues? This is a burning issue for the next generation of parenting. It's a number one front line. And this is the sort of application here. And he was veering between the line of, oh, let's get rid of the whole lot, to let them do what they like. So get rid of the whole lot would exasperate them, to use Paul's language. You can't disconnect yourself from your culture. Let them do what they like would violate his conscience because he knows that this must be shaped because of all the negative things, not least the addictive patterns of behavior that come about in these kind of things, which our country and our culture is becoming increasingly aware of. So here's a really big challenge. And children, he calls, to honor and respect their parents. That's a pretty sensitive issue in itself, isn't it? In a world where respect is at a premium and is not always modeled in the culture around us. Then he goes on. We could elaborate all these things, of course. Coming to this question of slaves, which I've explained to you because it's really important. This is talking about people working in the household, working in the, in the households that Paul was dealing with in Ephesus. Some of the Christians were actually slaves. Perhaps 25% of the congregation were slaves. They didn't know whether they could come on Sunday morning because it would depend on whether they'd be given time off work and they didn't have any choice in it. Some were actually masters. Some people converted to Christianity actually owned slaves. So they were at risk in their attitude towards those people. Verses 5 to 9. Slaves. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when the eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God with your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do, whether They are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The masters, the uh, head of the house, was literally the owner of the slaves. He could do whatever he liked with them legally. Slaves were called to work Wholeheartedly, masters to treat their slaves or employees well. Now slavery has gone, thank God for that. Paul would have been delighted if formal slavery had gone. Of course, we have modern slavery hidden, but in legal terms, it's gone. Paul would have been thrilled, but he didn't have the power to make that change in his era. But so it had to be managed. And so going back to my friend in Johannesburg, remember the one who challenged me about the Bible, the other thing I noticed about him was he was a very hard worker. He lived in an unjust society, but he said to me, I'm working not just for this master, I'm working for my heavenly master. That's incredible, isn't it? Working wholeheartedly. And that principle of wholehearted work comes out of this passage and can be impli- applied to any kind of work where you're an employee. So as we work as employees, we'll come to employers in a moment, as we, as we work as employees, it's tremendously e- easy to get into a rather cynical, negative view of work when we're stuck in a particular job or the general culture of the work environment's not particularly good. You know that feeling. It's there everywhere, isn't it? But Christians can capture something from this in the workplace, which is, however boring or difficult or frustrating or challenging the workplace might be, every day we can work for the Lord. We can imagine him being in the workplace, watching us, and we're doing things in an attitude that would reflect him. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who's adopted this view. He's been in a really He's been telling me for a number of years, I'm in quite a boring situation in my career uh, where I'm doing I'm, I'm just ticking over, I'm not really enjoying it very much, but I'm really committed to just keeping going with the job. And he'd often say, pray for me, I'd, I'd love to have a better job, I'd love to move on. I've been talking to him for four or five years about this issue. And then this week he told me a very interesting story. He said, my boss came up to me and said... Uh, I've been watching your work. You've really been working well. And there's a new job that's just come up in this particular area of the business. What do you think about it? Just what he wanted, actually. And he said, yeah, I'll take it. And so he said to me today, after about five years of, uh, this week, about five years of waiting, suddenly something came up. And the reason was because while he was in a dead end, He did the job really well and it was watched. That's a godly discipleship at work. And that's what we find so hard to do. And then he talks to employers, masters, people employing other people. That's another really important area as well. Look after your employees. Don't just use their economic benefit for your business or whatever you're doing. Look after them. And as I was thinking of this, I thought of the guy who, 200 years ago, almost exactly, a Christian guy who ran a mill factory on this site. His name is Charles Hulbert. He had a very strong faith and he had a big workforce, and that workforce worked right where you're sitting, with a big mill building here. And he was known for not only producing a big Sunday school here, but he was also known for really looking after his employees because he was a Christian. And Paul would say, that's discipleship. So as we come to the end of this passage, we've hit a huge number of issues, haven't we? There's something for every one of us to think about. It's not a comfortable ride seeing Paul talking about these relational issues because we think, first of all, we might think, well, this doesn't address my particular situations. What happens if I'm in a household which is a female-led household or a broken home or I live as a single person? Or I'm married to a non-Christian where none of these things apply precisely to me. We need other New Testament material to help us think those things through. That's a very relevant response. And the other thing we may feel is, wow, how do we live up to this? Well only by God's grace and strength. And some of us may feel, well, actually, I've been through a relational pattern in my life where things have actually become broken. Well, there's always grace. There's always God's grace. There's always forgiveness. There's always opportunity. So I want you to take something from this complex and challenging passage. It might be about the workplace, Might be about parenting, might be about marriage, might be about family life generally. But I think there's something for all of us to learn from Paul's amazing and challenging teaching. And I believe that faith comes by hearing, as was stated earlier on, and a sense that the Word of God, even this morning, might just help us at an individual level to to think, yes, I could do this differently, I could change here, I could respond in this way. And so I trust that you'll be able to do that. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, we're on a journey of discipleship. Thank you for your help on that journey. Thank you for Paul's teaching. Father, we ask you to give us your Holy Spirit to help us live out whichever bits of this teaching are relevant to us. And we just thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll hand back over to Terry. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Martin. We're going to